Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, making money meaningful. Welcome to Season 2 of Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. As we begin our second season, I want to take this opportunity to thank you, our listeners. We now have listeners in over 50 countries around the world, and it continues to grow week by week and month by month. Thank you for listening and for sharing this podcast with your friends and for ranking us on the many podcast networks to which we belong. Keep it up. Help share these stories with people around the world, stories of the economic and social successes that personify modern-day Israel. I've received many emails and inquiries about when Season 2 will begin. Here it is. We have many exciting interviews coming up in 2020, and I hope you enjoy all of them. It's a really interesting idea. It wouldn't work for me, but I think I... Other people will use that. For me, it's a problem. I'm moving to the cloud in order to uh, to solve that. And in the cloud, uh, you don't pay for resources that you don't use. This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as the Startup Nation, the state of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and of course their failures, and we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. In 2006, when I was scouting for office space for a new startup that I had launched, we were shown big, beautiful offices with lots of space. Consistently, when we were shown these office spaces, there would be large enclosed internal rooms where the previous companies would have had their data centers. These data centers were huge rooms with elevated floors and specialized ventilation systems in order to protect the equipment, the servers, and the switches that would be stored there. Today, it is rare that companies would allocate such space to their servers. And that's because of something called cloud computing. Cloud computing is where companies outsource their network operations to companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Oracle, and IBM, eliminating the need to own, monitor, and service their networks. In our case, had I had cloud computing back in 2006, we would have saved a huge amount of money. Now, fast forward 14 years, and cloud computing has undergone exponential growth. According to Tech Jury, in 2010, $24.65 billion was spent on cloud computing, And according to the latest cloud statistics for 2019, the total expenditure worldwide will reach a figure of $210 billion. That's actually a 24% increase from 2018. When it comes to big players in cloud computing, it is indisputable that Amazon Web Services owns the space. A whopping 80% of enterprises use AWS as their primary cloud platform. What's the hardest part of cloud computing for companies? Well, it's actually the transition. The transition from their local servers to the cloud. That process, which must be done very carefully so as not to compromise the corporate network, is what has helped facilitate the massive growth of the industry. A few years ago, veteran tech entrepreneurs Ofer Gadish, Gil Shai, Ofer Ehrlich, and Leonid Feinberg launched an Israeli startup called Cloud Endure. As you'll hear from Ofer Ehrlich, 
Cloud Endure accidentally discovered the magnitude of this opportunity and built a business solely to help companies immigrate to the cloud. And not surprisingly, Cloud Endure grew very quickly. It grew so fast, in fact, that it caught the attention of Amazon, who then acquired them for an undisclosed sum of money. This is their story. We heard today with Ophir Erlich, the co-founder of a company called Cloud Endure. Cloud Endure was acquired by Amazon Web Services in January of 2019 for a substantial amount of money. The one warning that I got before I interviewed you was, whenever you can get him, get him, because he's a really busy guy, and I appreciate you joining us today. So thank you. Thank you. Great. So Ophir, let's talk, let's start off a little bit about yourself, and which is what I typically do with the people that I, that I interview, um, getting a little bit of a sense of, of where you grew up and, and ultimately what led you to you know, Cloud Endure, but, but there's a lot that happened before, beforehand. Okay, sure. So I uh, grew up in uh, Netanya. Netanya is like uh, 30 kilometers uh, north of Tel Aviv. And uh, actually, when I grew up, uh, computers were... I, I was born in 80, uh, 1981, and computers were pretty new at the time. There was no internet. There was no hardly any communication uh, w- between the computers whatsoever. And I started taking interest of that in uh, when I was in the third grade. My brother claims it was the fourth grade, and started the uh, programming in a GW Basic. At the time, it seemed stupid. I was the only. What one. kind of computer did you have? So I had, and I actually had a relatively good computer at the time. It was a two eighty six eighty. Wow. Yeah, which was two eighty six. That was even that's before Pentium. Yeah, that's that was what those big boxes. That's way way before Pentium. Pentium was actually was the five eighty six. The two eighty six was my the first computer. Actually, I played games on it initially, but then, like all the kids who had computer. But for some reason, got the bug of programming, and I uh, started trying to see how we can use these things to create your own things. Now, at the time, I was both a child, didn't know what I was doing, and there was no internet to learn things from. Uh, only books, uh, most of them not translated to Hebrew, which was a problem when I was in the third grade. So I started doing a lot of experiments. So I was uh, writing in a GW Basic and then QBasic, and then moved to Pascal after a few years, but... It was also, I started uh, coding uh, 3D graphics, and it was really nice. I was around, uh, I think it was uh, eighth grade or something of the sort. And it was slow for me. Pascal was really slow on 286 and the 386 at the time. So I learned assembly and started writing uh, 3D engines in assembly. So let me just take one step back for, for a second. Um, do you come from a technical family? Like, like were your parents into computers? Or this was just like um, a discovery on your part? No. Both of my parents were definitely not into computers. My mother used to be a teacher, and then she works in the library for uh, the blind. And she died of cancer a few years ago. And my father was actually a banker. Uh, he was really good with numbers, but he wasn't into computers. But he actually drived me to actually using computer and engage me into it. And actually, my family was extremely supportive. Also, my twin brother was really supportive and pushing me toward doing it. He actually started programming before me, but he stopped after a, a short time, and I continued. And apparently, it was a good idea. And, <laughs> apparently. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it was really good. I was coding for a long time, relatively. Uh, I didn't really... During my high school, I didn't really have notebook. I have just one notebook where I wrote code, nothing co- related to what we actually had in, in the classroom. We didn't really have 
computers in the, the school as well. We, have, we had a, a computer lab, which we almost never saw. It wasn't like today. It was really rare. And the computer, the computer teachers always, computer science teachers always hated me because I was this annoying little kid who wanted to show them that I know more. And more than they knew, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I, I was annoying for sure. Eventually, when I was in the 11th grade, I think, they started liking me for some reason. Actually, I went and gave, I was a private tutor for some of their children who were students in the university. It was really nice. It was really weird for me for to teach students who were 10 and 12 years older than me, but it was actually pretty, pretty nice. And so, so how old were you at, th- at that point? About 16 or 15. 16, wow. so 15 or 16. Wow. This is all before, I mean, just for the listeners, this is way before Israel was the startup nation. 97, something of the sort. Okay, in the mid, mid, mid to the late 90s. That's right. So you're beginning, beginning, beginning to get to those dot-bomb era where, where the internet yeah. started to... Exactly. At the time, no one even knew what the internet is. We actually communicated via something called bulletin board systems, or in short, BBSs. I don't know if, if anyone over 40 there, you probably know what it is, maybe over 35. I remember. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just age myself. <laughs> and then it was nothing like the internet in any way. It was a peer-to-peer. You had to call a, a phone number, and then you could communicate in a very primitive way using a computer and... Uh, chat with a, a system operator or maybe download files or upload files and stuff like that. And that's it. And then uh, at the age of 17, in my last year in high school, I started working for a startup company. It was 99, just uh, when the, it, it was before the dot-com, dot-com bu- uh, bubble burst, but it was when there were such a high demand for uh, people that even took an idiot high school kid to work. Uh, I knew how to code, but I had no responsibility whatsoever. I could say that I will come to the office, and I just didn't. I did, didn't even think about the applications. I worked part-time, and then full-time, and then part-time. Uh, and then I just wanted to disappear and went to the army and thought it was fine. And that, that was Symbionics? Yeah, that's right. Got it. Actually, it was a really good company. 17 years later, they were acquired. And even today, if you go to the website, you still see uh, uh, videos and screenshots of code that I wrote in, 90, in 98 or 99. Wow. Really awesome. Wow. So g- looking back, before we get to the army, because mm-hmm. obviously that, that is, uh, has a material effect on, on everybody mm-hmm. who build yeah, businesses in Israel. But you weren't really an academic. Uh, That's right. You weren't the, the, the kid in the school who got the straight A's necessarily. Uh, absolutely. So actually, I didn't like school at all. And I actually started university when I was 15 or 16. I don't remember exactly. But I had a, a few courses. And I got some points. I didn't get a, a lot. When I was in the army, I got some more. I think I'm about 70, 80% of... I finished about 70 or 80% of the degree. I never knew how to sit at home and actually study for a test. I don't know how to do it till today. I was lucky that math came easy to me. So I and I landed Open University where they had you can bring books with you to the test. So actually, sometimes I actually learned the material for the first time in in the exam. And <laughs> sometimes it works. It was really it worked. It was really funny. Wow. And uh, back then I was an an idiot kid who who thought he knew everything and doesn't need to learn anything. So who are they to teach me something? <laughs> of course, I was wrong. I was an idiot. Okay. <laughs> Do you regret actually not not being more of an academic? And no, actually, I kind of I'm 
really proud of not having an academic degree. I actually think in general, it's a good thing to do that. I, I encourage people to go and, and learn. I think it gives you a lot of the basics. But for me, it was sort of a, an achievement to, to uh, get to uh, places in high tech without uh, having a degree when many, many, many of the people I work with or work uh, uh, for me actually have several degrees. Sometimes one or two, sometimes more. So for me, I really enjoy this fact. However, I do encourage people to go to the university. I think it's beneficial in general. So let's talk a little bit about um, the army now, because because mm -hmm. you, you you were in symbionics, you you left and you were drafted obviously to the IDF. Exactly, that's why I left because I, draft, I was drafted. You're stuck. You, you had to do it, and and uh, you obviously went to a top also top intelligence unit, unit eighty two hundred. Tell us about that a little bit. Okay, so did uh, you want to go to that unit? Was so that I really wanted to go? I just didn't. I had no idea how to get there, and so I started sending my CV anywhere I could. And I didn't know how to write a CV, so it was way too detailed and and not focused. Because it's interesting, because because they, the the IDF actually begins tracking students, like most of their academic career. They're they're watching who are the brightest students, and I imagine they use academia school to assess is this a smart kid or not. That's right. But for me, it was a problem because I was in Netanya, and they didn't even look at schools in Netanya. I think I was the first, no, I wasn't the first one, it was almost the first one from a school who went there definitely to actually to computers in where the, the, the place I was inside 8200. And I had no idea how to get there. I actually had someone who was senior in Mamram, which is uh, not, uh, uh, the non-intelligence training course for computers, tell me I ha because I have a high physical profile, I have no chance of getting into uh, intelligence or computers in general. That and means if you're in good physical shape, they want you in... in in, in combat. In, in a combat unit. Exactly, in combat unit. Infantry uh, so, or, yeah, or... I was, so actually, uh, yeah, and uh, so I tried to get myself interviewed ev everywhere. And actually, I got to to I, I got to be tested to to Mamram to this non IDF unit, and actually I passed all the tests, including the ones for uh, the high physical profile, where they have a limited number of people which can get there on, with a with a with a high physical profile. And at the same time, I passed the test for the for the intelligence unit for eighty two hundred. I didn't know that at the time. And that was, I think, because of my work in symbionics. A friend of mine who also worked there and went to the army, he was academic before that, he recommended them to talk to me. And so that was actually really good for me. And eventually, I didn't know what I need. I actually had to choose. The, the army asked me to send them a fax of why, what I want to choose. I didn't know anything. At the time, the intelligence offered me one and a half years in, after my mandatory. I, I needed to sign one and a half more years after my mandatory service to go there. And in the non-intelligence unit, I had to sign two and a half years. So I went for the shorter time. The, uh, so three years is your mandatory service. Yeah, and I. So it's four and a half years. Yeah. So I yeah. needed to uh, to add either additional two and a half years or one and a half years. Got it. So I didn't know what to choose. Luckily for me, I chose the right decision from the wrong reasons, but I was a, a kid at the time, and I went to eighty two hundred. I didn't know that initially, of course. Only when I got there after a long time, and actually it was really beneficial for me. The main thing it was surprising is that when I was 
I was an arrogant little kid who, who thought he knew everything. He doesn't need anyone to teach him everything. I already know how to program. I don't need anyone to tell me anything. The interesting thing is that you come to a place where there are numerous really brilliant people. And the teachers are also super brilliant, super smart people and super knowledgeable. And all of a sudden you find yourself, you really need to actually listen in the class and really need to learn and to raise your finger and ask questions, which is something I wasn't uh, used to. And it also gives you the humility that there are people who are much more knowledgeable and, and much more trained than you and, and more skills. So you have to adapt. And this actually is really helps elevating your level. I think that when I was there, I think this was, this was the maybe the most important thing. There were such smart people there that they kept lifting me up. I felt that it really pushes me forward. And I what I wanted to do is to, in return, try to push forward the people who came after me. And also, there were really good people. They were really good people, both in the most of them. Uh, from a personality perspective, from a technical perspective, they were really smart, they were really knowledgeable, and it was and it really liberal, and it was a very enlightening experience for me. The army for me was, it has this, its bureaucracy, uh, and it has a lot of army stuff. I wouldn't say it was perfect, but I think that the gains from going there were huge, uh, and the connections which came afterwards are not of people who I just know from somewhere which I met in some convention, but of people who I worked with night and day and we coded together, we, we shared thought together, we had disagreements together. So even today, I have really strong connections with people I see only on rare occasions because we remember how we worked with each other and what we did. So this was actually pretty great. On top of that, we work on super interesting stuff and I strongly believe till today that no matter how interesting the things are outside the army, nothing compares to both the goals that you have in the army and the sense of achievement, and and what the sense of achievement and what you uh, and the alignment of everything of everyone towards achieving the same goal. In, in a large company, it's not the same. There are financial goals, there are technological. Everyone wants something different. In the army. I think one of my commanders in the army told me, a smart guy named Ruby, that what's interesting is that both the uh, the army chief of staff and the and a soldier in the field they both want the same and all have the same goal, which is really really interesting. Politics aside, of course. And I think you actually became a team leader in the army. Yeah, which is interesting because because until now. Mm -hmm. Growing up, and you know, you yourself said you're this, you had a head full of a lot of hot air in terms of you, mm -hmm. you, you believe in yourself and you, you know, you exactly. thought you knew everything. And suddenly you're put into a position of responsibility where you have to manage other people. That's right. And before I came to the army, I, I remember my father talking to me and he always wanted to convince me to become a manager and said, no, 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 I will be a programmer always. I never want to manage anyone, anything, anywhere. Just let me code. This is what I like. I don't want to do anything. But, you proved him wrong. Yeah, I proved myself wrong. Actually, he proved me right <laughs> because eventually I became a manager. And actually, I I really like to be hands-on. I still, till today, I'm trying to be as hands-on as possible, even though today it's I, I can't be as hands-on as I used to be. 
because I have lots of other stuff to do, unfortunately. But I think that I realized that as a manager, I can do what I want. It can do my influence, but at a scale. Not, o- not only use uh, my time for that, but influence the time of others to do what I think is right. So if I can do it like if a 20x mo- multiplier uh, instead of 1x ma- mine, which this is really good for me. And uh, this is really helping what I want to achieve. If I, I believe that I want to build large stuff, I can't do it by myself. I need to get other people to help me come and build it or uh, build it with me. So being a manager allows you to do that and also allows you to understand the big picture better. So that, that's a perfect segue into the fact that you're a three-time entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And um, the first company that you founded sort of in your last year of the Army, where mm-hmm. you had that overla- overlap between mm-hmm. Army and, and working, you were the co-founder and software team leader at a company that you started called DigiCash. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Okay, so uh, during my last year in the Army, I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in the Army for a longer time or uh, live and see what's out there. When I was in the Army, I, you, you don't understand what's outside. And so I took a, I took a leave of absence for a year, and I uh, thought that after a year, I'll come back and see whether I want to stay or not. And after I left, I eventually decided uh, that I want to stay in the, in the high-tech industry. This is what fit me. Other people, uh, I encourage you strongly to stay in the army. It's a really good place. They really need good people, and they're really doing important stuff. But I left the army and actually joined a, a brother of uh, a friend of mine, also from 8200, also a really successful entrepreneur, the brother, and my friend, I'm sorry. Uh, so his brother started, started a company and said, hey, let's ca- come join me as a co-founder. At the time, I didn't know what I was doing. He also didn't know what I was We were all didn't know what, uh, what we were doing. He came from Microsoft. Per- perfect for an Israeli entrepreneur exactly. uh, startup. <laughs> but at that time, we really didn't know what we were doing, or what's, what a startup even means. He came from Microsoft. I came from the army. And we brought another uh, guy from my unit. And I was a junior founder at the, at the time. Uh, also something that I would never do today, but I, again, I didn't know better at the time. Again, it was also his fault. He didn't know better either. None of us knew what to do with how to divide our shares and how to cope and what to do and what we needed to do to raise money. What was and the idea? So the idea was actually, it was a bit fuzzy, but if I generalize it today, it was actually create a digital virtual, a virtual digital uh, wallet for, in, initially it was money, but then we moved to coupon, to coupon management, actually a sophisticated coupon management. It was a bit both slightly ahead of its time. A few years later, there were, were a lot of stuff like that, like that. But mainly the main reason that it didn't succeed was execution. We didn't know how to execute. And I think that the key point for startups for succeeding or failing is not the idea. The idea is usually worth nothing or close to nothing, but purely the execution. We didn't know what we're doing or how to do it on, or what are the goals that we need to achieve in order to succeed. And this is why we didn't uh, we didn't succeed. We had a lot of access to good talent. We actually had an amazing team there. And most, if not all of the team that we had there, I think that at the peak were around 20 people, I think. Most of them work in really good positions, really high positions in really good companies or became entrepreneurs themselves. So and so and this was a really fun, even though the startup was not successful, this was a really fun time for me. 
and I really enjoyed it. And there were ups and downs. It was the business wasn't trivial because we again we didn't know what we were doing. But over the time, I understood that I don't have a lot of influence because I was it's called a junior co-founder, and I didn't do anything to change that. And after in 2008, I left. And a, a few months later, the startup was shut down. We, you, raised, you raised capital for that. You yeah, raised we raised uh, six million dollars, if I remember correctly. They were from Super Angels. They were from the. Uh, remember, it was the CEO of Lotus Notes and the CEO of the COO of one of the largest bank. I don't remember which one it was Citigroup. So, so looking back on it, mm-hmm. in retrospect, mm-hmm. from where you are today. Would you have done the same thing? Would no, you? it's hard for me to answer that because I have much more knowledge today. So I think this would, could actually be a given successful execution. We would have probably pivoted to a good position eventually and became and could have become marketing tech successful marketing tech company, like many successful marketing tech companies today, and which are doing more or less what the vision of Digicash was, but we lacked the execution, so uh, we couldn't get there. The vision was not sharp enough, and the mission wasn't clear to us. We didn't know exactly which business goals we need to achieve or how to achieve them, how to build the, the team correctly, and how to test the market and how to examine it to understand where exactly is the real product market fit. So we were we were in the neighborhood of a, a successful idea, but weren't executing well enough to do so. And but a lot of good things happened in, in that startup. So I'm not upset that I've been there. And actually, there when it was really bad, the things were really bad at the end. We understood that we we have hard time with the customers and with the team across the sea and stuff like that. They weren't. Bad people just had a lot of uh, uh, differences. And actually, we saw that myself, the one of the other team leader, which we brought in, the VP R&D, which we brought, which were Offer and, Le- and Leonid, we offer Gadish and Leonid Feinberg, we handled ourselves really well and we coped really well together. And then when, we, when I left, when we left, we said we worked so well together we think it's a really good idea to st- to try and do a startup together. So actually with them and also with another friend of Offer called Gilshai, we formed our second company uh, called AccelerWeb. Now this was an interesting story because this was 2008 and there was... My- yeah, not a good time to, to launch yeah. a startup. At the time, we didn't know that. So because the crisis didn't start yet. So when I left Digicash, the the markets was there was still money in the market. People were raising money. Everything was happy. The 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 birds were singing. Everything was great. But I remember I took a month's vacation to the uh, United States and I went to New. I was in New York and I went to Times Square with a really really good friend of mine who later on became our VP of Business Development in Cloudendor. And he told me, "You see this sign." You see this place? This is a new sign. There was 106, for 106 years, there was a sign of Lehman Brothers there. And now, just a few days ago, they took it off and put a different one. And they said, uh-oh, something really bad is happening. <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah, yeah it, it was, was bad. It was crazy. And then we, when we decided we want to start a company, 
We didn't realize that there's a crisis. We understood something's happening, but we didn't know what's going on. And when we had an idea, which was interesting about that, I think, as well, when we wanted to raise money, it was a whole different ballgame than any other time and that at least I remember. There was almost no money in the market. And we raised $720,000 from our really young VC at that stage, Wild Ventures. Today, it's way bigger and successful. Today, it's a cyber, it's a mostly a cyber-oriented uh, venture capital. It's uh, Israel-based? Yeah, it's Israel-based. Okay. Uh, stands for your Avlite as the uh, uh, managing uh, partner. And actually, they're quite successful today. Now, it's interesting because your first startup that mm-hmm. you raised seven or six, seven, six, six, six million dollars for failed. Mm-hmm. And yet, the investors in Israel gave you a second chance. That's right, because Israel celebrates failure even more than celebrate success. And I think it's a really, really good idea and a really good thing. And it's something that makes us unique in the world, I think, because unlike a lot of places in Europe where you have brilliant people, but they are really afraid to go out of their shell, they have PhDs and and really successful, really good workplaces and stuff like that, but they will be super afraid to go out and fail. They think it will shame them. In Israel, it's if you try and fail, that's okay. No one will think you 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 are, are a, a lesser man or lesser woman. And on the contrary, they will praise you for trying. It will even be look well on your CV later. So I think this is really good in Israel, and this really encourages people to do to have startups and to do a lot of innovation. I am a bit mixed about uh, whether it's a good idea for anyone who wants to to uh, have a startup, but in general, definitely encouraging. And it's a really nice feeling to have that it's not a bad thing to fail. That's fine. That's okay. And uh, But actually, it was at the time, it was a really, really, really hard to raise money, not because of our team or our idea, but because there was no money. No one would invest. All the VCs couldn't invest the money because they were afraid that their investors wouldn't give them the money that they committed to because there were a lot of pension funds and stuff like that, which got hurt really bad from the crisis. So there was a freeze in the market. So I think, so we raised a really small amount of money, and we actually were the definition of a lean startup for a long time. It didn't scare you away at all? No, it didn't scare me away. I think some of it, because we are, I also still blame some of it for maybe, you know, inertia, or maybe uh, hybris, or maybe something that says, I know I can do it despite that everyone is not not successful right now. And uh, maybe it was even a greater challenge. So I think we actually had a good idea, but again, I don't believe in in ideas in general. I only believe in teams, in my opinion. Uh, I think the teams and the industry are the things that are important. The rest falls in line. Given those two are successful, the rest fall in line. When we started, we have a, we had a completely different ideas and uh, an idea. And I, this, is, this is Excel Web. Yeah, that's yep. right. And I'm not sure that I have the perfect way to find the f- perfect formula formula to find a, a, the perfect idea. But I think that my experience teaches me that probably a working formula is to get to a 
an idea where you have a hot industry and a nice idea which gives you a value proposition of something. And this will not necessarily be your idea. Actually, I don't think it will. Ev- there's a small chance that eventually you will still keep this idea. But this actually gives you some subjects to talk about with potential partners, potential uh, uh, influence in the industry, potential customers, potential partners, and tell them about your ideas. Tell them what the, what the value propositions, all name uh, all the things that you think that they could benefit for, from and listen a lot. And after you talk for, to about 20 to 30 of those, you will and you try to really write down everything they say and take it back offline and be humble about what you thought initially. You actually find a lot of insights. Usually those customers, they're not entrepreneurs. So they don't, even though they're in the market, they usually don't really know anything except what they need. So if someone tells you, I don't need this, but I think my friends, someone else in my industry will need that, I take this as they don't need that. I don't have the other information. But if I understand that someone needs something for something that I that we said that I, I, we proposed, then I think okay, this is one point uh, which goes to to this idea. Now, initially, we started with an idea to use a, a really bad idea, by the way, for Excel Web, where we said let's use many many the the servers in. Um, many uh, different companies around the world so they could serve each other's content. So in case one of the, let's say that Ynet in Israel, which is a a news site and New York Times are collaborating this way. So if someone from Israel tries to access New York Times, he will get the content from Ynet instead. And the Ynet servers will store the content from New York Times. It's a bad idea for many business reasons, but we are naive at the time. And we thought it will remove, it will help with peaks. If there is a peak in, in consumption from New York Times, then Ynet can help them. It will improve the performance because it's it's closer and the distance, it's not trivial, but in general distance, a shorter distance means better performance for various reasons. And the third thing, it will be, it will reduce costs. At least we thought so. And when we thought we talked to a lot of people, and people are nice, so they all told us, ah, it's a good idea, but the usually the but was the performance thing is what what we really, really like. And after we heard it a lot of times, we said, okay, our idea is not really good because everybody had concerns about a bunch of completely valid things. Again, it's not a good idea today, I definitely know that. But they all wanted us to improve our performance. To help them to improve their performance. So during the process of you vetting Mm -hmm. the idea, you actually pivoted based on that, based on what you heard. So I think, so since we also did something similar in our second startup, I think, and I saw other people do that as well, I think that the idea that you have is not so, so relevant as of the input that people give you, and you must be willing to, completely changes based on their input. And actually with that, we came to AccelWeb, which worked in a completely different way, but started to restructure webs, web pages so that they will load faster. So that, for example, if New York Times would, would use AccelWeb, the web pages will load three, four times faster than they would load without AccelWeb. So uh, thus improving 
the, the number of, pe- of satisfied people from the site, improving conversion, improving the number of uh, pages that people see, improving the number of, the number of uh, items that people buy from e-commerce shops and stuff like that. In those days, mm-hmm. uh, internet was pervasive everywhere, mm-hmm. but the speeds were what they were. They were much slower than they are That's today. Right. And so... And the infrastructures were really slow as really well. Also, so, so what you guys offered as a value added was despite that infrastructure which you had no power over, mm-hmm. AccelerWeb would increase performance and that, make it faster. That, that's right. It was dynamically lo- looking at the content as it's being generated and trying to uh, uh, reshape it. So it's so from the end user perspective, the only thing that changes is that the content loads faster. So that's what we did. And actually, we raised money around, I think it was uh, September, if I recall correctly, of 2009. And we got the offer to be acquired by Lionheart Networks on uh, November of 2010. It was uh, actually a fairly short trip. And it's six like a, months like later, a year and a half almost. Yeah, maybe? and six. Actually, it was. Yeah, it's less than a year and a half from investment till we got the offer to be. Uh, they got to the uh, offer to be acquired, and then we had a lot of negotiations. And on May of 2011. 9th of May of 2011, were acquired by LimeNet Networks for a um, smaller sum uh, in the tens of millions, uh, in the lower tens of millions. And then... Uh, but you oh, became a millionaire yeah. for the first time. Yeah, it was... Uh, I, I put myself a goal to be a millionaire before I was 30. Uh, it was 21 days before my t- 30th birthday, so I was happy. Okay. Uh, so, and we then joined uh, LimeNet Networks. We formed their office in Israel. I joined as VP of software development. It was an interesting time. Uh, it wasn't trivial for us uh, to move from our culture to Limelight. Limelight was, I think, at the, at the time, it was an $800 million company. It wasn't a large company, really large company. I think it was around uh, 1,000 employees at the time. And it it's was- It's not bad. Yeah, it's not <laughs> bad. And they were based in Arizona, CR. And it was really interesting to see. It was actually the first time I walked in, a, let's call it a semi-corporate, except for the army, of course, and especially an American company, which has a different culture than uh, Israeli, definitely Israeli startups. And we stayed there uh, as a part of the acquisition for about a year and a half. Then we left. And then we said, okay, this was a nice ride, but now... Uh, we didn't kill each other, which is rare for uh, <laughs> for entrepreneurs, for founders. And let's uh, said now we're ready for the big league. Let's do a, a, a bigger. Uh, let's chase a bigger dream this time. And when and, and this is obviously Cloudender. That's right. When did you think of the idea? When are the first? You know. Oh, okay. So so again, I believe I strongly believe in teams and not in ideas. So what we did, we actually set together after we left Alignlight. We sat together in each, each day in, in, one, in one of the founders' apartments, and we actually tried to do it in an analytical way. We actually try here's something that in general doesn't work, but for us it worked. The first finding an interesting sound, I wouldn't call it by luck, but it was our combined comfort zone. What we understood was a good play, a good space to be. So we eventually got there. But we had a, a, number, a, a number of ideas in various spaces in uh, creating a dating site to creating an e-com and uh, something which helps e-commerce platforms and 
eventually, uh, we had an idea. I, I remember it was just before uh, the Sukkot holiday. I had an idea to how to save cost of electricity for companies. I thought they had... They had a problem that in many, many companies, for example, what, ha- what was the, uh, at the time in, in many of the companies like Limelight Networks, I'm not sure if Limelight had the issue the, uh, as well. We didn't get to, to check in that point, that there were many, 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 many servers which are running and not doing anything, which are mostly idle. It was before the age of the cloud. It was just a looming at the time. And they weren't doing anything. So most of the time, companies were spending a lot of money on electricity and on ventilation and, and on, on maintenance of those computers. And what we wanted to do is to put them all in a hibernate state and at least until they're needed, and so save them money on electricity bill. That was that was the original that idea. That was the original idea. See how it's completely different than power, the idea today. Power management. So sorts. what yeah. happened actually is that I remember I was excited about all Sukkot, but we decided not to work. On, we worked in this way. We decided not to work on Sukkot, and we we will continue straight after. And I, I told to the, to my partners that were also excited. It sounds sounded interesting, but then we went and talked to about thirty potential partners, customers, friends, knowledgeable, etc. And everyone's vet, nice. To, to vet the idea. Yeah. yeah. Everyone was nice. So no one tell you, oh my <laughs> Everyone, God, Everyone's always nice, idea. right, right. They don't say, and they don't know that. It makes sense. They don't do the multiple, they don't calculate the total available market themselves. They think whether it suits for me or not. And like uh, I, I told before, most of the times uh, they told me, they told us, um, it's a really interesting idea. It wouldn't work for me, but I think in other people will use that. For me, it's a problem because it will because of two main issues. One, it might hurt my availability, our availability, and I'm really afraid of downtime because I'm afraid to be fired. Let's say if we talk to a, I know to a CIO of a company, and I don't want to have a downtime, even on the expense, even if I can save money, because I'm afraid for my job. That's the first thing. The second thing was, well, I'm moving to the cloud in order to, so, uh, to solve that. And in the cloud, uh, you don't pay for resources that you don't use. So after getting a lot of those reactions, uh, we thought and combined the two together in something completely different. We understood that people are afraid of availability, but in the on-premise, non-cloud world, they actually have solutions. And we, we've learned that those people are moving to the cloud. So people are moving to the cloud and are afraid of availability. When you say availability, you mean a server goes down, it's not available. Exactly. I'm, like, I'm sorry. I, no, no, it's I, good. It's good. Availability means that, uh, again, that uh, the service is available so people can access and use it. So let's say that you are Netflix. So if your servers are down, for example, what happened in Christmas of 2013, and your end users can't use that. But even in Extreme situations, unless you are in a company and you try to send a mail and your mail server is down, so you don't have emails for half a day or even for two hours, it's horrible. Think about if you remember... So, so really, it's continuity. It's, it's yes. so, if, if your systems yeah. are not continuously working, the cost to businesses could be gigantic. Exactly. So from availability, we understood that the pro- main problem is actually business continuity. And in business continuity, we get to the field of field of disaster recovery, because we understood that businesses and servers uh, are going to have disasters. Applications are going to have problems 
for many, many reasons. It could be a meteor strike, but it could also be power outage, and it could also be some employee ate a sandwich and accidentally hit the button to shut them down. It could be a number, it could be a, a mouse ate the, the cable. It could be a, a number of things. And availability is a major problem. And while there were many solutions at the time for the on-premise environment, there was no solution for cloud-based environment. And what we found out about a year or two later is that, that the solutions for the on-premise environment weren't good enough as well. So in those days, because mm -hmm. today everybody's on AWS. Of course. I mean, it, it, it makes mm -hmm. no sense to have your own server farm. Of course. But in those days, for those who don't know, you would literally, you know, offices would have huge rooms, ventilated, elevated floors in case there was flooding, where you'd put your own servers there and you'd operate it yourself. And if something went down, you panicked to get it up. When you went to the cloud, so you no longer have a local presence that the risks of something locally happening that are beyond your control are there, they don't exist in the cloud. So it's one step removed. So you're really focusing on on the cloud part of it and not on the local... Exactly. So, so but initially, we were focused on the cloud, or cloud part of it. And the problem when you move to the cloud, one of the main problems with moving to the cloud, one of the things that delayed the move is that on-premise, even though you might have floods and you, have, you might have problems, it's in your control. The problem with moving to, one of the main problems with moving to the cloud is you don't have control anymore. You don't have a control on security. You don't have a control of the type of hardware and you don't have control of whether a cable is going to go down. For example, just not long ago, Google Cloud has a global outage, a several global outages, and uh, the Microsoft Cloud had some famous global outages as well in the recent times. And this really scares customers, and they are afraid to move to the cloud because they don't know what's going to happen. It could be on their application level. Their own applications will go bad for some reason, and it could be on the infrastructure level, for example, the cloud. This concludes part one of my interview with Ophir Ehrlich, the co-founder of Cloud Endure. Join us for part two as Ophir tells us the story of how they built Cloud Endure and how they almost accidentally fell into the tremendous success that it became. And of course, the story behind how they attracted the attention of a little company called Amazon. You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Machlis. The assistant producer is Rachel Zack. And the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. If you have a successful startup in Israel you'd like featured on the show, please email us at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. And you can now visit our brand new website, www.startupstoriesisrael.com, where you'll find our growing list of podcasts with some of Israel's most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders. A big shout out to my employer, Alliance Bernstein, for being incredibly supportive of this initiative. Please remember to rank us on your favorite podcast network and to share these stories with your friends and family. Until next time, thank you for listening. 